John chapter 11. And we're going to look at something tonight. It's the last of four parts. And we're going to see after Jesus performs the last of the seven signs in the Gospel of John, which was the greatest one, raising a dead man, Lazarus, back to life. Surprisingly, the reactions were not all the same. Many believed, yeah, many believed. However, even though Jesus raised a dead man back to life, there were those who not only refused to believe, but also plotted to kill the very one who not only gives life, but is life himself. Then there were those who were just indifferent. When you and I preach the gospel, don't be surprised at the mixed reactions. You're going to have mixed reactions. Some will believe, some will be indifferent, but some will be hostile and even murderous. And maybe we don't experience that in our country, yet in other countries, it's a reality. And no matter what the reaction may be, we need to love people enough and tell them the gospel and spread his word. That's our command. Let's turn to John 11. We'll read from verse 45 to verse 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he, had, and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas... That hurt. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you, God, for the truth of your word. And we pray, God, that you open up our hearts and minds to see what John was saying to his audience back then and how it applies to us today. And God, that we wouldn't just hear your word, as James says, but we'd be doers of your word. That we would know how this applies to us today and simply obey in Christ's precious name. Now, there was an article in the Elkhart Truth newspaper which is located in Indiana, and it reads like this. Community members have mixed feelings on Elkhart tractor dispute. Some want the tractor display on an Elkhart lawn to stay, while others say city officials shouldn't bend the rules for one person. Community members on Facebook had mixed reactions, 
to a continued dispute between Elkhart officials and a city resident over a tractor displayed on the resident's lawn. Madison Blue, owner of the tractor, says the machine is homage to her family history. She moved the tractor back to her yard despite a warning from the city officials in August that it violated zoning laws. City officials argue that the tractor doesn't have a place in the residential neighborhood. And here's what the readers had to say. One said, I love seeing the tractor sit in her yard. It's cool. Another one said, I went past the tractor yesterday. It is well done and hardly an eyesore. Also, it looks cool parked in the lawn. Another one said, I think having a tractor that, that has been restored should be the least of Elkhart's problems. With all the abandoned homes or those that are run down, the city has more eyesore problems than the tractor in our yard. There is no public sidewalks or driveways that it's blocking, so why should the city care uh, what she has in her yard? And another one said, let's keep her tractor. Now others say the city shouldn't bend the rules for one person. One says, I feel awful about this, but zoning ordinances are laws, and they're also pretty specific about definition of agricultural versus residential use, including the parking and storage of equipment. I believe what makes our country truly exceptional is our adherence to the rule of law. If you don't like it, then work out with the, elect with the elected uh, county officials to get it changed. If it's not worth the bother to do that, then it is also not worth debating on social media. One other person said, the ordinance is in place for a reason. I don't want my neighborhood full of couches and cars and yards. If she's that proud of her traffic, she should take it to a show. Another one said, and this is the last one, oh sweet, now I can park my old dump truck in my yard because a guy I knew once drove by it. Heritage people, it's my heritage. There's a reason the city has zoning laws. And it ends the article, what do you think? So, the residents of Elkhart, Indiana, were concerned with a small, insignificant problem, a tractor on a front lawn. Their, as you notice, their reactions were, what, mixed? In life, we are all confronted with things that force us to react either positive, positively or negatively, or just indifferent. On a far greater level, when confronted with the gospel, we will have reaction one way or the other. When we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will force hearers to make a decision. This is part four of chapter 11. And all of chapter 11 is centered on the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Part one, Jesus gives the reason for Lazarus' sickness, which was for God's glory. That was verses 1 through 16. Part 2, verses 17 through 37. Jesus proclaims that he wasn't just going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he himself was the resurrection and the life. Part 3, verses 38 to 44, the last time I spoke, Jesus demonstrates his resurrection power by actually raising Lazarus from the dead. And now in part 4, we will look at the post-resurrection reactions. Every time... Jesus appears in a crowd. Guess what? There's division. Jesus raises a dead man, which forced the people in the crowd watching to make a decision. Is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Is he who he claimed to be, the resurrection and the life? Or is he a fraud? And the three points in this section, which is our outline tonight, are the reactions of those who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. The first one of the believers... Second one are the unbelievers, and the third one, the indifferent. So let's look at the first one, the believers. Verse 45 again. 
Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, what? Believed in him. When you and I preach the gospel, make no mistake about it, some, not all, some will believe. When the Apostle John says many believed in him, he doesn't mean all believed, but a good deal of them that witnessed this miracle believed. They went from unbelieving to believing. John Calvin said, Christ did not permit the miracle which he had wrought, meaning worked, to be without fruit. For by means of it, he drew some people, some persons to faith. You see, the miracle itself doesn't produce faith, but it led them to believe him. Now, believe in him is a simple term, very simple term. And yet it's a crucial term. And yet many Christians in America today don't understand the real meaning of what when Jesus talks about believing in him. The Greek word for believe is pistero, and it means to think, to be true, to trust, to have faith, to entrust. In other words, this kind of belief is not just an, extra, an intellectual ascent of Christ, but it's a deep-rooted trust in him and him alone. John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then we have Acts 4.12, which tells us, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. You see, our faith, our trust is in Christ and Christ alone. It's not Christ plus works. It's not Christ plus Buddha. It's not Christ plus my denomination. It's Christ and Christ alone. And I, as the song says, in Christ alone will I glory. Though I could pride myself in battles won. For I've been blessed beyond measure. And by his strength alone I have overcome. Oh, I could stop and count success like diamonds in my hands. But these trophies could not equal the grace by which I stand. In Christ alone I place my trust. And find my glory in the power of the cross. In every victory let it be said of me. My source of strength. My source of hope is Christ alone. In Christ alone will I glory. My source, my strength. My source of hope in Christ alone. Now we must remember something. That not all who believe in Jesus display true saving faith in Him alone. In the second chapter of John, it tells us that many believed in Jesus when they saw the signs He did. This is the second chapter. However, in the very next verses, it tells us, and we're going to look at John 2, verses 24 to 25. It says, it says they believed first. But then it says, but Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he knew himself what was in man. So not everyone who says, I believe, is a genuine Christian. Another example of not genuine saving faith is Acts 8.13, where it says, Simon the sorcerer believed Philip as he preached the kingdom of God. However, a few verses down, Peter is rebuking Simon. Listen to verses 14 to 23. It's a little lengthy, but I think it makes the point. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, 
But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, that doesn't sound like a person who had genuine faith in Jesus Christ, does it? Okay. I just wanted to make sure you're alive. By the way, we're serving espresso coffee back there in case any of you want to stay awake. You know, Brian and I see everything up here. We see the ones who fall asleep, you know. But anyway, so that doesn't sound like a person who had genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Now the Greek word for believe in all three examples I just gave are the same. Pistero. So you might think, well then that's genuine faith. But when you attempt to interpret scripture, you must not only look at words, but context also. Let me simplify it. All three, John 2.23, it says, Many believed in Jesus when they saw the signs he did, but he didn't entrust himself to them. Acts 8.13, it says, Simon himself believed. And in our text tonight, many of the Jews, therefore had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. All three say the same word, hysteria, the same Greek word, believe. But the context seems to say that only in our text tonight that there was genuine belief from the heart. Whereas the other two were just superficial intellectual assent. And for a few reasons, in our text tonight, that many of the Jews who saw Lazarus raised from the dead did put genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Why do we think that? Number one. When they saw the glory of God at work, raising Lazarus from the dead, they linked it directly to Christ. And number two, John makes a clear distinction of those who believe and those who do not. In verse 46 it says, once again, many of the Jews therefore had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Here's the, the contrast. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So it appears that many truly believed in Jesus, but some didn't. And because the ones that did believe in Jesus, when they saw him raise a physically dead man, guess what? Their spiritually dead spirits were also raised. They put their faith in Christ, and now they're raised back to life, spiritually speaking. They became alive. So Jesus demonstrated physically raising Lazarus from the dead. And in the meantime, the people who put their faith and trust in him spiritually, they were raised to life. A good friend of mine and this ministry, his name is George Zaloom, some of you know him, which is one of the elders at Salem Evangelical Free Church in Staten Island, and is also on our board of trustees. We have seven board of trustees, George is one of them. He came to faith in Christ around the same time I did. I think I may have been a year or two before him. And when Christ came into his life, this man was spiritually dead and was made alive. And because of his new life in Christ, it began to attract others to want to know Jesus Christ. Now his father was a Catholic, but opposed his son new faith in Christ. And his father began to attend George's Bible study, his son. His father's name is George also. And he began to attend his son's Bible study. And he came to the first two. And he 
came there specifically to re- re- refute his son. And on the third time he came to the third Bible study, he stood up and he said to the whole Bible study, he said, I don't know what you have, but I want it. George Sr. surrendered his life to Christ, and then the rest of his family saw the change in their father, and every one of them surrendered their hearts to Christ. Today, George Sr. is an ordained Baptist minister in Florida. He serves as an associate pastor. Every Wednesday, he serves food to 250 refugees from Honduras. And every Thursday, he and his wife serve at their local nursing home. Today, the whole family is serving the Lord in ministry. And they, and they have families with children and grandchildren loving Christ. My dear friend George was like Lazarus, dead as dead could be. But the same way the life of Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, and many put their faith in him, Jesus called George, George, come out. George was made alive in Christ, and his father believed, and many, if not all, their family believed. Christ resurrected one man, and from that one man, many believed. Now this doesn't always happen to families who come to faith in Christ as a result of one man's resurrection. I mean, maybe it happens to Cheryl's family. They're all here tonight, you know. But it doesn't happen all the time. But if you're born again, rest assured that people are observing your resurrected life. And you preach the gospel to them. No one gets saved apart from the words of the gospel. George told his father the gospel. When we preach the gospel, some will believe. But some will not. Some in the crowd were unbelievers. When you and I preach the gospel, some will not believe. And also, may try to harm us. Now some of the crowd who witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead not only didn't believe, but also plotted his death. Let's read verses 46 to 54 again. By the way, if you're not like Cheryl's family or the Zaloom family, pray for your family. You pray diligently. But some of them went to the Pharisees, that's the contrast, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? They're panicking now. For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to him, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the one, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. But some, but some, the, the but some, the some may have been unbelieving spies for the Jewish leaders. More than likely, they were not going back to the Pharisees and try to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. Because God, uh, John contrasts them with the, those who believe. Now before, excuse me, before I work my way through this section, I want to bring something to your attention. Okay? This was a phenomenal sign. Of all the seven signs that John 
writes his gospel around. Of all the signs, this was the most, the greatest one. The seven signs were when he changed water into wine, healing of the nobleman's son, healing of the paralytic, feeding of the 5,000, which really trans- translates into oh, close to 20,000, walking on the water and stilling the storm, healing a blind man from birth, and this last and greatest climatic sign, raising Lazarus from the dead. Now the reason for these signs were those who witnessed the miracles and those who read about them may come to the conclusion and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, that's clear. John clearly says that in the purpose of writing the gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31. And since I've been preaching through John a few years now, I've been reiterating this purpose, this um, reason for the gospel, every now and then. Because it's the reason for John's gospel. But there's something else that most Christians will overlook. And that is, although, although the raising of Lazarus as the final climatic sign was to bring people to faith in Christ, right? It also becomes a climatic occasion for judgment. A lot of people, a lot of us will overlook that. But we need sometimes to look at all of Scripture. Let's turn to John 12, verses 37 through 40. Jesus is teaching the people and telling them that he was going to die. And once again gives another invitation to believe on him. Jesus is always inviting people to come to him. However, most would still not believe in him. And this is what John says concerning them, which is, by the way... Uh, Generally speaking of the nation of Israel. And John is going to be quoting the prophet Isaiah. Though he had done so many signs before them, they they still did not believe in him. He did all the signs, they still did not believe in him. So that the word was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And this is the prophet Isaiah. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Listen to this verse. Therefore, what? They could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. You see, number one, they still did not believe. After seeing the signs, they still did not believe human responsibility. They could not believe God's sovereignty. God is sovereign in salvation. We must understand that. But yet man is responsible. It's a paradox in the, in the scriptures. But yet the Bible teaches both. Their unbelief was not only foreseen in scripture. But was a part of God's sovereign plan. A judgment act on his part. Now obviously there's much to say on this. And God willing when I get to John 12, 38. We'll look at this much more extensively. But the point is that this was no surprise to God, but God actually did the hardening as he did to Pharaoh of Egypt back in Exodus. When Jesus raised Lazarus, it actually brought judgment to those who rejected Christ. You know, it happens, by the way, when you and I preach the gospel. If they refuse, it brings judgment on the people rather than salvation to those who believe. Listen to Dr. R.C.'s role. All the signs that Jesus gave were not enough to persuade people of the truth of Christ. Because what was required for faith then is the same thing that is required for faith now. Namely, the ministry of the Holy Spirit who accompanies the word of God to remove the scales from our eyes and to one stop our ears that we might believe. See, unless 
our eyes are divinely open. We sit in darkness. And yet, once again, we're still responsible. So the unbelieving spies left and went to the main opposers of Jesus, who were the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees did not have any political power. So together with the chief priests, priest, they had to call a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which was a committee consisting of Pharisees, Sadducees, approximately 70 members altogether. The Sadducees were mostly chief priests, so the Pharisees were really the minority in this council. But here's the interesting thing that I, that I saw. The two became one. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, if you know anything about them, did not get along and were often in conflict. Without detailing it, they had little in common. The Pharisees believed in the whole, the whole Hebrew scripture and they believed in the resurrection. Not the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the whole Hebrew canon. They just believed in the first five books of the canon, the Pentateuch. Um, and here's the interesting thing. In spite of this unity and conflict, their hatred of Jesus drove them together and unified them to take counsel against Christ. short time ago at work, when I was at work, a bunch of co-workers and myself were standing around waiting for the plane to land so we could unload, scan, and, and, and sort the freight. And as we were waiting, we were conversing. There was no arguing or harsh disagreements until we started to speak about Christianity. Now in our group that we were talking with, there were Muslims, there were New Ages, there were Catholics, there were atheists, and I think there may have been a Buddhist amongst us. And as we were speaking and Christianity came up, all of a sudden there was disagreement. The arguments and the disagreement were not the atheist against the Muslim or the New Ager against the Buddhist, but all turned in disagreement towards us, the Christians. You see, what happened was the religions of the world unified against the truth, Christianity. That's what happens. Usually what happens is the unbelieving world, even though they might be different, come from different worldviews, they unify and attack the one true religion, Christianity. And if you have never experienced that, you will. You will. The attack on Christ is still going on and the rulers of the world are still unified in their stance against his church. Listen to Psalm 2 verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And this is precisely what has happened when the Jewish leaders found out about this miracle. They began to devise... They began to conspire. They began to scheme how they can get rid of him. They were not disputing, by the way, Christ's miracle. Or even the raising of Lazarus. They weren't disputing that. They didn't dispute really his miracles. Then why were they so opposed to Christ? Well, if they let Jesus continue doing the miracles, they were afraid of a political revolt. That's what they were afraid of. You see, Jesus' popularity at this point was growing. And if the messianic passion of the Jewish people ignited and caused an uprising, then the Sanhedrin could lose their position of power. You see, they weren't concerned about right and wrong. And, but they were concerned about how it would affect them. Jesus would affect 
their status quo. And the Romans would take away their place, probably meaning the temple, which is symbolic of their authority and power and privilege, and their nation, meaning the Jewish people. They were going to lose their heritage. That's what they were afraid of. In other words, the Jewish leaders were afraid Jesus would change their nice, little, comfortable, well-organized religious system. And how foolish. Because what happened in 70 AD? That's exactly what happened. The very thing they wanted to keep they lost anyway, along with their eternal souls. Jesus said, what does a prophet a man if he should gain the whole world, yet lose his own soul? But did Jesus, cut, did Jesus come to cause an uprising? No, of course not. He came to seek and save the lost. But when the lost come to Christ, the vision begins. Also, when he returns, he's going to destroy all earthly rule. I think when we preach the gospel with people and we run into opposition many times, especially if we were speaking to a religious person or a group of people that are religious, most of the time the opposition is because of status quo. They like their neat little religious system and how dare anybody try to change that. Or if you share the gospel with a non-religious people, person, how dare you tell them to turn from sin and trust Christ? They love their sin. They're very comfortable and settled in their sin. We may not be preaching the gospel to the Sanhedrin, but sinful hearts are still the same. And when we declare his glorious gospel, some will believe, but some will not, and will harshly be opposed and be unified with others in their opposition. Back into our text. The Jewish leaders are frustrated that their feeble efforts are not stopping this Jesus from the people believing in him and they fear and they feared losing the temple and their nation. So with all this confusion and what's their next move, the high priest Caiaphas, in his arrogance, said in verses the second half of forty nine to verse fifty, he says, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish unbeknownst or what of what he was saying, Caiaphas was actually God's providential prophet. He didn't know it. What he said was true and firmly rooted in Jewish thought that one man should die rather than the whole nation or group of people should die. Like Jonah, remember Jonah? Who was thrown overboard rather than the whole ship and crew should perish? And in 2 Samuel uh, uh, chapter 20, when the troublemaker Sheba is killed by the whole city of Abel is spared, and also the martyrs during the Maccabean period. So they understood one man should die rather than the whole nation. So so they were thinking what Jewish thought, and he was too, Caiaphas. However, who said Jewish thought is always correct? Many times Jewish thought, thought understands the letter of Scripture, but not the real intent of Scripture. You see, Caiaphas said the right words. He said the right words, but with the wrong heart and the wrong motive. In essence, he was saying, which by the way was purely political. He was saying, either Jesus dies or our nation perishes. But he was saying that to protect and preserve the Sanhedrin's power and that nation's existence. Caiaphas, who served as high priest 18 years, doesn't mean that he was just high, uh, high priest that year. He served 18 years And as high priest, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. He did not know the magnitude of what he said. 
God transformed his word, words of seething hatred and jealousy of Jesus into prophecy of substitutionary atonement for the nation of Israel. But he would not die only for the nation of Israel, but also for the people of God. Jesus will die for the world. Where it says in verse 52, And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. From a purely Jewish perspective, that is referring to the Jews who lived outside of Palestine, who would be gathered into the body of Christ as God's redeemed. But in a broader sense, what did it mean? It meant the salvation to the Gentiles that would be grafted in. That's you and I. It was the plan of salvation for Jew and Gentile. What's happening here? This is the heart of God's glorious plan of salvation, proclaimed through an unbeliever. God uses who he wants, when he wants, how he wants. It's God's providence and his sovereignty. In other words, God used Caiaphas and directed his words to fulfill his glorious purpose, by the way, without violating Caiaphas' will. You might say, well, how did that not violate Caiaphas' will? Because Caiaphas, Caiaphas said what he wanted to say, which was evil. However, God took what he meant for evil, the very same words, and used it for good, the redemption of lost sinners. And I said this before, and I'll say it again. You can't make this stuff up. You can't make it up. It's beyond clever. It's supernatural. After Caiaphas prophesied from that day forward, guess what? They planned, they pl- they planned to kill Jesus. Now I find this extremely hard to believe, that they would try to kill Jesus. Why? Well, how stupid can you be? He just raised Lazarus from the dead. But it goes to show you, and I want you to hear this, the depth of sin. Jeremiah was correct when he said in, verse, in chapter 17, verse 9, most of you know this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the depth of sin. When we were lost in sin, we would do anything. The sinner hates God and will do anything to silence him. But the time for Jesus to die was not yet. So Jesus went away into the wilderness to Ephraim. Now we need to understand that Jesus was in full control of the situation. We're not allowed a crucifixion before its appointed time. Dr. Donald Carson says this, to those with eyes to see, he was making a theological statement. No human court could force him to the cross. Both the fact and the timing was simultaneously the Father's determination and his own willed act. Oh yeah, they would succeed in eventually arresting him and killing him, but on God's timetable, not on theirs. And by the way, they didn't have any trial. They already, they already tried him in their minds. They were just plotting to kill him. Again, we need to understand that this is a, the predetermined sovereign plan of Almighty God. Peter in Acts 2.23 calls it the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And John in Revelation verse chapter 13 verse 8 calls Jesus the Lamb slain where, when? Before the foundations of the world. And I was always thinking about how this applies to us today. That we can preach the gospel and some who refuse to believe. Two things came to my mind. Number one, those who preach the gospel but would not harm us, they just kind of shrug it off. And the other, number two, is those who are radicals, 
who would not only reject the gospel, but also would love to silence us. And the best example, of course, today would be the Islamic State known as ISIS or ISIL. There was an article in Voice of the Martyrs, November 2014's issue. How many of you get Voice of the Martyr? Raise your hand. Okay. You need to get Voice of the Martyrs. I mean, it is, it is one wonderful magazine that really keeps you informed of how our brothers and sisters are suffering to the point of death in other countries. You're not going to hear it on Fox News or CNN. You're not going to hear it on that. But you'll hear it through Voice of the Martyrs. And it's a free subscription, so I would get it. So the article read like this, and, and I think the article sums up the, the point of how radicals against the gospel still exist today. And the, the article reads like this. In Syria, radical Muslim groups like ICE, Islamic State, and the Al-Nusra Front are driving Christians from their villages. Their actions have been nothing short of barbaric, with reports of beheading and crucifixions. In neighboring Iraq, ICE gave Christians in the city of Mosul an ultimatum in July. Convert to Islam, pay high taxes, leave or die. Now, many of us heard this. Their intent is to rid both countries of Christians. Sound familiar? Things have not changed. Remember when the Jews stoned Philip to death? Luke tells us in Acts 8, verses 1 to 3, that Saul, the great persecutor of the church consented to his death and that he also made havoc of the church and went into people's homes and dragged them off into prison nothing has changed thank God Saul became Paul and became one of the greatest apostles you know wrote most of the New Testament but, but before his conversion he was doing the same thing that the um, Islamic terrorists were doing nothing has changed listen please listen carefully the sufferings of Christ still go on, but it's now through his body, the church. Yes, Christ's sufferings were sufficient. We're not speaking of the suffering of his atoning death, but rather the suffering that the church would experience for the gospel's sake. Even though Jesus Christ died on the cross, his enemies did not get their fill of hurting him, so they turned their hatred on those who preached the gospel in his church. In other words, they're still taking out their vengeance on Christ by hurting his church. So when you and I preach the gospel, some will believe, some will reject, but guess what? Some will be indifferent. When you and I preach the gospel, some will be indifferent. Verses 55 to 57. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. And this is probably the third and final Passover before his crucifixion mentioned by John. And as directed, in, as directed in Numbers chapter 9 and 19, every faithful Jew went to Jerusalem to purify themselves so they could celebrate the Passover. And that was very ironic because as they were purifying themselves, guess what? The Jewish leaders were defiling themselves trying to put Jesus to death. Um, there were probably upwards of a million people that came to the Passover celebration. And many in this 
huge crowd showed an intense interest in Jesus Christ. They didn't seem to be they didn't seem to be that hostility like their leaders, but on the other hand, there was no commitment to him either. Oh yes, there was enthusiasm, misplaced enthusiasm, but no disciples, no willingness to pick up their cross and follow him. In other words, they were indifferent. As a matter of fact, the same crowd who hailed Jesus as Messiah when he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday would soon cry, crucify him, crucify him. We should not be impressed with this fickled crowd. They were at best indifferent. And by the way, indifference is just as dangerous as unbelief. Jesus said in Matthew and Luke's gospel, he who is not with me is what? Against me. He who does not gather with me, what? Scatters. There is no middle ground. Either a person believes Christ and is a follower of him, or they're not. Since Christ came into my life in 1978, I've seen people, some people come to Christ. Some. I've seen some people outright reject Christ. Some. But I've seen myriads and myriads of people that were indifferent towards Christ. I've seen some come to Christ. I've seen some reject Christ. But I've seen many of them indifferent. There are those when I shared the gospel with them, they acknowledged what I was saying and would either say, wow, I'm glad for you. And yes, I believe in Jesus too. Or, yes, I believe in Jesus, but not as deep as you. In other words, what they're saying is, not as fanatical as you. I think... Once again, indifference is as dangerous as outright rejection. With indifference, just like unbelief, you're on the road to hell. Dr. Lyndon Duncan said in his sermon called Indifference, you really can't be indifferent to Jesus. You either accept him or reject him. There's really no middle ground with Jesus. What about the Christian? Can the Christian be indifferent? Can you and I be indifferent? May I be bold enough to say some may even be indifferent towards this message tonight? When we come to church week after week, hear the word of God preached faithfully, Brian comes up week after week, preaches faithfully, and we go, Brian, really good message, great. And we walk out unchanged, guess what? We're indifferent. We need to repent and confess our apathy to God. We need to get away from indifference. When we hear the word of God preached, we need to allow it to change our lives. We need it to move, we need to allow it to move our hearts to action. And by the way, I might be a pastor and I'm preaching, but when Brian preaches and I sit there, I am under his preaching. And I am commanded to not be indifferent, just like any of you. And same thing with Brian. We don't just come up here and think that, you know, well, because we're up here, because we're pastors, that we can, you know, we, we know the gospel already. No. We need to hear it and let it move our hearts, and we've got to be careful of not being indifferent and not walking out the same person. And when we, the word of God is preached, we need to let it move our hearts to action. In conclusion, When we share the gospel, we need to expect that some will believe, some will reject the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and many will be indifferent. 
And guess what? If they believe as you're preaching to them, rejoice. If they reject the gospel, move on. If they're indifferent, challenge them. Challenge them. Like Joshua did to the children of Israel. Choose for yourself today whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you, God, for your ever-illuminating, great, great word. Let us not be indifferent toward your word. If some here that do not believe, I pray that your word touch their hearts and they become believers. If some of you, if some of them may have rejected your word, I pray that you melted their hearts tonight and they would come to believe in Christ. God, and I pray if any of us are indifferent, whether we're Christian or not Christian, if we're not Christian, God, that we would make a choice. And if we're Christian, God, we'd allow your word to change our hearts more and more, to sanctify us more and more, to be more and more like Jesus, not to be satisfied where we're at, but to be so in love with you, so in love with your word, that it changes us, Lord. We're constantly changing to be more like Jesus. We don't want to stay the same, Lord. We want to be more like Christ. So help us, Father. And thank you in Christ's precious name. Amen.